What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Pete Rizzo is editor at Bitcoin Magazine and editor-at-large at Kraken. He previously served as editor-in-chief at Coindesk. Pete has spent the last few years documenting the early days of Bitcoin. In this conversation, we discuss Satoshi Nakamoto, who it could be, what we can learn from the early communications, why Satoshi disappeared, and how important Satoshi is moving forward. I really enjoyed this conversation with Pete, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Public Rec. They simply make the most comfortable clothes in the world. I'm literally recording this wearing a black hoodie from Public Rec. Public Rec is where indoor comfort meets outdoor style. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pant is a more stylish alternative to sweatpants and a more comfortable alternative to jeans. From the couch to the gym to the grocery store and everywhere in between, Public Rec has you covered. Comfort starts with a better fit. You can get free shipping and free returns if you visit publicrec.com slash pomp. Again, free shipping and free returns if you don't like it. So go to publicrec.com slash pomp. Use code pomp at checkout to get 10% off. Again, publicrec.com slash pomp. Use code pomp at checkout for 10% off of the most comfortable clothes in the world. I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it. Next up is Kraken. Kraken is one of the largest and oldest Bitcoin exchanges in the world. Kraken is consistently named one of the best places to buy and sell crypto online thanks to their excellent service, low fees, versatile funding options, and rigorous security standards. I've had Jesse, the CEO and founder, on the podcast before, and Kraken is just one of those OGs. They've been on the forefront of the blockchain revolution since 2011. They also have been funding Bitcoin developers, so you know they've got a soft spot in my heart. Kraken is one of those places where you go and you just feel at home if you align with the Bitcoin ethos. One of the largest and oldest Bitcoin exchanges in the world for a reason. So go check them out at Kraken.com. K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Kraken.com. I promise you'll like what you find there. Last but not least are my friends over at Unstoppable Domains. Unstoppable Domains has teamed up with OKX to make crypto simpler by supporting .crypto domains on their exchange. Unstoppable Domains allows you to receive over 70 cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Chainlink, with a single blockchain domain name. They make it super simple. This makes it so much easier for millions of users to send and receive crypto by using their name, like pomp.crypto. I literally own pomp.crypto, and if I send it to you and you put it into a wallet address, all of a sudden, I'll get the crypto. It's the stress-free experience needed for mainstream crypto adoption. Plus, .crypto domains are NFTs that you can store in a wallet so you permanently own them and can transfer them all around to other wallets as needed. Go to unstoppabledomains.com and get your .crypto domain today. Once somebody else buys a name, you can't get it. So go to unstoppabledomains.com today and make sure you buy the names that you want. Unstoppabledomains.com. They've been longtime sponsors of the podcast, and I'm a big fan, and you should go support them at unstoppabledomains.com. And if you feel really, really special, go click in the description on the link so that we get credit unstoppabledomains.com slash r slash pomp. All right, let's get into this episode with Pete. I hope you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Pete here with me. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, how are you? Pomp, great to be here. I'm energized. It's a, it's a, it's a bull run. There's excitement in the air. Uh, Bitcoin's going up. It's going to be an exciting year. We've got eight months to go, uh, I think. You know, room to run. We'll see what happens, but uh, I tend to agree with you. I think that you are not wrong. You are less wrong than you are right. <laughs> um, all right. Excellent. Before we get into uh, the mystery of Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, hmm. walk us through just what have you done in Bitcoin and what are yeah. you doing today? I think you've done so much. Uh, so just give us a little bit of background. Sure. Yeah. Pete Rizzo, uh, editor of Bitcoin Magazine, editor at large, the Kraken Cryptocurrency Exchange, where I oversee uh, their charitable grants to open source developers uh, and those types of projects. 
uh, one of the longest tenured uh, cryptocurrency journalists. I've uh, been writing about Bitcoin since 2013. Uh, people might know me best as sort of the editor, uh, former editor in chief of CoinDesk, which is the in industry's biggest publication. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm just some um, someone who hasn't stopped trying to understand Bitcoin, uh, and I think that has led me to you know, some places and some research where uh, I don't think other people would have spent the time. But, you know, for me, it's really just been propelled, I think, recently more more than, so than in the past, that just this idea that Bitcoin is an invention, you know, it's a, it's a human achievement. Uh, it might be a human achievement on a scale that we're, you know, really even just starting to appreciate uh, today. And I think that has really driven me of late over the last couple of years to try to understand as much as we can, you know, if Bitcoin really is a human achievement, then to me, it's worthy of being understood at that level. Uh, and for me, that meant going all the way to the back to the beginning uh, and, and really tracing it out. Because the other thing that's amazing is because, you know, you think about there's all this misinformation about Bitcoin out there. It's such a transparent project. You can literally go back to the earliest days. You can actually see conversations happening in real time between people in 2009, 2010, talking about Bitcoin before it had a price, uh, before there were exchanges where you could buy Bitcoin, uh, coordinating to propel this uh, project forward. Uh, and to me, I think you know, that's the stuff that I want to bring to the surface now, uh, especially at a time when people are really just rediscovering Bitcoin. And, you know, it's much different today uh, than it was back then. So when you go all the way back to the beginning, I think that you've spent a bunch of time, probably more than anybody I know, uh, trying to figure out who Satoshi is, why they're important, uh, and all the intricate uh, details that are uh, involved in that. And so maybe just like, why go back and focus so much on Satoshi? Hmm. I would uh, clarify just, you know, don't think it's important who Satoshi is, but, you know, I do think that I want to understand Satoshi as an individual who built software, right? We can understand how he ran the project. We can look at his intent. And I think uh, for me, it was just an effort to try to make Satoshi feel like less of a, you know, he's always depicted as this like black photo not found type square of a person, right? But he was a real individual that people interact with, interacted with. And for the first two years of the project, he was actually the primary person that you interacted with, right? If you had a question about Bitcoin, Satoshi was a guy you emailed, right? He was just a, another one uh, of the people kind of building and pushing this project forward. So for me, I think I really wanted to kind of scrape away this this just bland image we have of Satoshi as, as just this kind of non-figure and, and non-person and really just add some color or personality. Because I think what's fascinating is... Uh, and this is just a little fact that got me in my research is that on the original Bitcoin.org website that Satoshi launched, you know, he has a whole subpage about uh, how Bitcoin solves the Byzantine generals problem, right? That's the computer science uh, problem itself. So, you know, imagine being this guy, uh, you solve uh, their centralized money, you create money out of code. You know this, you know that you've done this, <laughs> and then you have to wait sort of months and, and all this time as people wake up to this idea uh, to me, that was what I kind of wanted to get out of it is really understanding the journey that this this person went through, because I think we can know that, right? We have this digital history of this individual. We might not know who he is, uh, but again, actions speak louder than words, right? We can go back and see what this individual did. Uh, we can look at, you know, uh, he never spent his coins. He never cashed out. He was never commercial. He was never opportunistic. Uh, you know, something that's got me recently is, you know, Satoshi never even prices Bitcoin. He doesn't say that Bitcoin should have a price. He never tries to sell a Bitcoin. Uh, this, these are things that the market was able to do around him. And I think, you know, for me, uh, again, all this kind of contrasts in an environment where increasingly you're seeing cryptocurrencies being sold by companies, nonprofits, like organizations uh, under all sorts of claims. And I think, you know, uh, for me and my journey to understand Bitcoin, I think it really, uh, I got to the point where I had to spend some time with Satoshi and say, okay, well, what did he really do? Uh, and I think what I found is that I, we just can know a lot more about that than we have because there's just this, again, this trove of, of data and information that he left behind. Uh, and, you know, maybe he didn't give us all the answers. He doesn't explain it out uh, as we would want it to. But, uh, you know, we can look at this record. And, and in the end, I think that's better than this sort of mythological type person uh, that he's become. And so when you started this journey, where did you go first to learn more about Satoshi? Like, did you go back and read the emails? Did you just start with the white paper? Mm. Where, where did you go? 
Yeah, so there's this fantastic resource called Bitcoin Talk. Uh, it's It was an early user forum for Bitcoin enthusiasts, and you really can spend a lot of time in that archive. It was uh, actually something that Satoshi himself launched, right? So uh, kind of an interesting fact is like for all this time when Satoshi, uh, you know, was was pushing Bitcoin out there for the first you know, nine or so months, uh, there's no Bitcoin price, right? It actually isn't until he launches forums where the users can get together that they create an exchange and a price, right? So he kind of creates this this space for people to talk about Bitcoin. And then through that, there's all this creation. Uh, And my article, uh, Last Days of Satoshi, out on Bitcoin Magazine now sort of gets into that, right? It gets into, okay, these people came together, they're building exchanges, it's exciting, Satoshi's pushing software, uh, and it gets into the early like trials and tribulations as, you know, this project grows and expands. And, you know, even then it's still worth pennies, right? Like people are literally in the beginning mining Bitcoin at a loss. They're spending electricity to create uh, Bitcoins, which are then uh, worth nothing, uh, right? So I think a lot of it was trying to just get the feel of this environment, um, and to really kind of understand what was pushing people forward at this time, right? Because today, again, this environment is so economically driven. It's all about investment. It's all about, uh, you know, number go up. Uh, and really, there was a time in Bitcoin that's like almost prehistoric now, right? Where this just didn't happen. There was no way to price Bitcoin. You you traded things for Bitcoin. Uh, you exchanged things for Bitcoin. Maybe it was your time. Maybe it was, uh, you know, your intellectual output or your art or something like that. Uh, but, you know, I think, it, again, I really wanted to look into this period and and, and really kind of uh, bring it to the surface in a way that maybe we hadn't seen before. You mentioned earlier that you don't think it's important who Satoshi actually is. Why is that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, because I think in order for Bitcoin to be Bitcoin, it, it needs to be uh, decentralized, right? And I think one of the, you know, the I launched this article on the 10th anniversary of Satoshi's disappearance. And I think, you know, again, going back to actions, um, one of the things that we have from Satoshi is that he left, right? Uh, I think the piece kind of gets into that and, and explores that. Um, you know, I'm not sure after doing this research that, you know, Satoshi maybe could have continued. I think the uh, industry outgrew him in some ways. Um, but um, sorry, what was your question again? Why do you think it's not important to uh, know who Satoshi is? Right. I think um, because again, like, uh, yeah, so Satoshi is, you know, um, we again are the people responsible for, for Bitcoin, right? And again, with Satoshi leaving, I think that's sort of the message that he wanted to get across, right? It was you know, I think at some point he recognized that users were ready to push Bitcoin forward, right? That they sort of looked up to him for a while as someone who had all the answers. Uh, and at some point, Bitcoin users became self-sufficient. And I think Satoshi identified that. He stepped away. Um, and I think in that example, uh, it's not as important to understand who he was specifically and where he was from, because I think we also have a lot of data about who the users are and where they come from and and them as a group. And ultimately, that's what makes Bitcoin, I think, special among you know, financial technologies. Again, it's, it is a peer-to-peer money system, right? All of the users are nodes. All of them are authors of code. Satoshi is the person who starts this network, right? He is the one with the idea. Uh, but in a way, it's, it's the users who propel the system forward, even today, right? It is the users who make decisions for Bitcoin. Uh, and, and in that way, you know, Satoshi, I think over time, uh, you know, he, he had to step away for Bitcoin to become what it is. And, and I actually would wonder whether you know, whether Bitcoin was actually, it could have been completed with Satoshi. Because again, it would have been a, if you think about it, what would it look like if Satoshi was still around today and there was a single individual who was in charge of a decentralized money? Would you be saying the same things about Bitcoin being a decentralized asset? Uh, Would you think about it as decentralized gold in the same way? Uh, I think the answer to that uh, is no. So, and again, like in a a sense, the project becomes special and it becomes uh, decentralized. It becomes realized in Satoshi's absence. And I think, again, that's why it's less important who he is and his actions sort of speak uh, very loudly in that context. Yeah. And when you start to think about kind of all of the body of work that you were able to analyze, what were the most surprising things that maybe people don't know about Satoshi uh, or the things that you took away from kind of this journey? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the most surprising thing was that people just treated Satoshi like a regular guy. (laughs) I think they were very comfortable complaining about him, like wondering where he was, like doing very strange things, like tracking like when he would appear on the the forums and like looking at his sleep schedule. Right. And I think there's some really amusing anecdotes in the piece of, you know, just people getting uh, or even objecting, outright objecting Satoshi's decisions. Right. We have this idea that like, 
you know, maybe he was kind of uh, benevolently supported uh, in his time. But yeah, there are some moments where Satoshi uh, makes decisions that people aren't happy with, uh, right? There's, um, you know, the Bitcoin users at one point, you know, the Bitcoin is a successful project. It's a million dollars now. All of a sudden, WikiLeaks, this kind of big organization that's doing a lot of work to undermine, uh, you know, uh, release information about governments. Uh, the, the users want to support them, right? They want to show what uncensorable money uh, can do. And, you know, Satoshi says, no, I don't want to do this. This is going to, quote, kick the hornet's nest, right? This is going to send the powers that be uh, against us. We don't want to do that. And then there's one user who basically says, uh, you know, if if, if uh, I can't send Bitcoin, uh, you know, this isn't Bitcoin, right? He goes on this kind of big screed against Satoshi on the forums <laughs> that you can read, right? So I think, um, like many leaders, right, people had a complex relationship with Satoshi. I think we we like to think that, you know, Satoshi is this benevolent father figure, maybe like uh, Adorian Nakamoto, who we think of, right? Like this nice, uh, you know, sort of, um, again, benevolent paternal figure. But I think for a lot of people at the time, um, you know, it just became such a big project for one person to manage. And I think that's really hit home for me is that, you know, Satoshi in the beginning, he is the admin of the forum. He he is the admin of the website. He's the person who must update the code, right? Him and a very small group of people. So, you know, in this, um, you know, as his time gets more constrained, as more users come on board, you really just kind of see that he falls to the pressure of, you know, almost being unable to satisfy all these users. And I think to me, that's pretty amazing because if you think about what it is that Satoshi gave us and what he achieved, um, you know, some of the complaints that the users make against him <laughs> in, in retrospect, like, you know, they might be a little small. Like maybe he was a few days late, like making this update that people wanted. Uh, and maybe they called him some names that, that, that they shouldn't write, but that they didn't know, right? It was there, they didn't have this myth of Satoshi, right? So we have this idea today of Satoshi being this big mythological character, uh, this legend, uh, you know, we can't know who he is. Uh, but in real time, that wasn't the case, and that but that happened, right? And it happened uh, in a very short time, where he disappeared, and then he became a legend. And and in a way, it, it almost started happening in his own time, uh, as he became less accessible. People became more comfortable, like drawing pictures of him, uh, imagining what he would look like if he was a woman, <laughs> like all these sort of things, where uh, they might seem sort of strange uh, if they didn't happen, right? Uh, because he was a person who existed and. Um, you know, people's relationship to him changed over time and it was a complicated relationship. So I noticed that you continue to use he, uh, and most people mm. when I talk to them say he, she, or they, uh, ah, is that yeah. because you have uh, conviction on it was a single <laughs> individual male, uh, or is that just a, uh, a terminology that you're using to simplify a uh, conversation? Got it. Well, uh, actually, so one of the things that Satoshi does uh, to evangelize for Bitcoin, because once he puts it on the mailing list and he releases the white paper, he goes on this website called the P2P Foundation. So, you know, Satoshi says, OK, well, who could I get involved in Bitcoin? <laughs> like, who's going to care about this crazy decentralized money? Right. So he goes to this nonprofit organization that, again, has another online forum uh, and he registers an account. So he makes a user account on the P2P Foundation. Uh, he says that he's a male. He gives his birth date uh, and he says that he is 46 years old. Uh, and then he, you know, releases a bunch of comments. Again, we assume this is Satoshi. Um, so I guess my claim would be that, you know, when given the opportunity to be identified, he, she, they, it <laughs> chose to be identified as a man. Um, and I guess in the spirit of progressive uh, values, that seems to, you know, if somebody wants to be, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, seen that way or uh, test in that way, then I think we should honor that. So I think um, that would be my justification for it. But I think. Uh, to me, again, one of these details that uh, that we can't know. But uh, again, when given the opportunity to identify, that is how he, she, it, they identified. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned birthday uh, kind of signifying like mid-40s uh, in terms of age. Uh, is there a thought in the back of your head of like, oh, this could be the real birthday or this also could be a birthday that's inputted to throw people off mm. the trail? Like, how do you just think through some of the uh, the information that you're able to glean and, and uh, the writing and, mm. and things like this uh, in terms of what's there as a clue, if you will, versus mm. what's almost left as like a, something to throw people off the trail? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Satoshi leaves us almost with nothing personal. That's that's what's really tough, right? It's a, a you know, I said at the beginning, sort of the OPSEC champion of the world, um, right? I think Satoshi, there's a reason that he still is mysterious. And, and one of those reasons is that he doesn't 
give a lot of personal information about himself, right? We don't know if these uh, kind of facts and figures that he put on the website, the small things that he did, we don't we don't have any evidence to know that if they're true. Um, and again, even in the way that he interacted with the internet, right? He used primarily used this forum that he created. There's no user data kind of associated with that. Um, and even in his interactions, um, you know, Satoshi wasn't the type of person to give small talk. If you had a question, he would answer it and he would give his best technical answer. Uh, but, you know, he's not on there talking about his favorite baseball team or like where he went to school <laughs> or any of that type of stuff. Right. I think that there are some instances where you can. Uh, and it's actually pretty surprising, like how few instances there are, I think, when you where you can derive uh, that Satoshi felt something through, uh, you know, the series of his actions because he is so reserved. And I think that if there's a remarkable sort of adjective to give him, he's very reserved. Uh, the piece goes into one of these, which I think is probably the most formative Satoshi event, which is early on uh, in, the, in the Bitcoin uh, history of the Bitcoin network. Uh, there is an attack on the network, right? So what happens over time is, is there's more publicity for the project. Uh, the caliber of coders who are reviewing the code increases, right? And at some point, you know, they hit about a level, you know, where Satoshi is, and essentially people start reporting bugs to him. Uh, and in one case, somebody decides to subvert one of those bugs. So in this case, they decided to basically formulate their own piece of software uh, that uh, tricked Bitcoin's accounting system into just printing 180 billion Bitcoins <laughs> onto the blockchain, right? So this is a dramatic kind of event where the monetary policy of, of Bitcoin is broken. Uh, Satoshi has to take the reins and actually publish new code, uh, convince all the users to switch to this other blockchain and breaks the blockchain for about you know five hours from what we can tell. Uh, and in that instance, uh, going forward, so he becomes a lot more reserved with his development, right? He moves a lot faster. Uh, he starts to be less uh, kind of open with the contributors he's working with. And, you know, he starts really prioritizing security, making a lot of aggressive changes to the software and exercising his authority in ways where, you know, probably if someone did that today, um, we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't say that that person maybe <laughs> was acting in the best interests of Bitcoin. Or, and, and really, I don't even think someone could act like that today, right? You'd have to be in the position of Satoshi. So I think, you know, those things to me are the interesting things that we can um, we can see, right? We, that's, the, that's the kind of data we can get from looking at these posts and looking at them over time uh, as we can see how he reacted, how, what those actions say, right? I think from the story anecdote that I would just, just told, I think Satoshi was someone who put the security of Bitcoin on a very high pedestal, right? He was willing to do things to protect Bitcoin um, that, you know, again, we can look at and analyze and we can, we can draw conclusions about his actions. And I think that to me, uh, sort of gets to the question what I'm after, which isn't really who uh, Satoshi is, but you know what Bitcoin is and and how it operates, um, and and what its you know values and mechanics are. So talk to us about the disappearance, right? At kind of the end of Satoshi's um, you know relationship with the project or participation. Uh, at some point, uh, he decides to walk away, and so walk us just through maybe sequentially mm. kind of what happens there at the end. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, the, I would say the last half of 2010 uh, is a really dramatic escala escalation in the number of Bitcoin users and the, the type of demands they have, right? So I think early on, uh, it's very, you know, the, the concerns of the users are very utilitarian. They're trying to use Bitcoin and they want to use it for things, right? Over the course of 2010, that really changes and it really changes towards the end. Uh, where there's a series of discussions that I really wanted to highlight where all of a sudden you have these like uh, existential questions that are being asked for the first time, right? And, I, and, and it's amazing to me just how, like, how quickly the succession of, of these disagreements are. You know, it starts off with, should we change the software to make it more usable, right? Something we still struggle today. Uh, you know, it's, uh, should the software or the project be openly political, right? Should it align with WikiLeaks, right? That's, that's still something I think, you know, Bitcoiners struggle with today. Um, you know, there's also an incident where Satoshi, uh, you know, decides that uh, he wants to turn off certain transaction types, right? The users can't, you know, do certain things in the network anymore. And people, you know, sort of rebel against him. They say, we wonder, we're going to run this different code and we, you know, we don't like this idea, right? So I think there's a dramatic escalation where uh, the types of disagreements and like Satoshi's ability to solve them, this is best personified by a thread where 
you know, literally people are inventing the idea of altcoins or other cryptocurrencies or other blockchains, right? There was just no, people had no conception of this. There's this thread that sort of lays out, okay, well, hey, there's this Bitcoin thing. Uh, what if we designed another Bitcoin to, to register people's domain names? And it was like an application where uh, people could register domain names and there was a Bitcoin type system. And this just spirals into these pages and pages and pages of debate about, okay, what are cryptocurrencies? Are there more than one? Like, should there be more than one? Should we rebuild this system? And is Bitcoin the best version of this? Should we actually start many versions of these things? Uh, and there's no way for Satoshi to answer that, right? There's no way for any person to answer that. The market is still is still figuring that out today. Uh, but I think towards the end there, right, there is this sort of idea that, again, the users have grown up. They're, they they have these demands that a Satoshi can't solve. And I think that as those things built up, he decided, you know, uh, basically it was time to walk away, that, that the users were essentially in control. Uh, you can see his sign-off and it's observable in the code. So one of the neat things that I found was that he actually relinquishes, uh, well, I don't know about relinquishing but he, he removes his name from the copyright claim in the software. So he does sign off. There is an event where he takes his name out of that code base. Um, and uh, you know he removes his name from the Bitcoin.org website, right? And he puts the names of other developers. And there's been a lot that have been read into these different events over the years. People have you know, speculated about um, how this transition of power took place, whether Satoshi picked a successor, whether his successor was a specific individual, uh, whether Satoshi even had the power to grant a successor at all, because again, Bitcoin is, is governed by users. Uh, so the transition, I think, uh, is a bit that that to me was really, I think, a focal point where I wanted to center on, because I think in the transition, you get a lot of interesting and, uh, you know, sort of questions, right, of what does it mean to give up leadership of Bitcoin? What, what did it even mean to have leadership of Bitcoin to begin with? Uh, and I think uh, that's that's sort of why the disappearance is an interesting moment um, in Bitcoin's history, uh, because it is so unique. There just there just could not have been another time where the leader of the project disappears uh, and there wasn't. Uh, and um, I just didn't think really, I hadn't seen any real study of that. Uh, I've heard a lot of like, you know, uh, miss it, like sort of, you know, stories and tall tales about, uh, you know, certain developers going to the CIA and certain other things happening, right? And this also sort of gets washed around. And I think, you know, what we can know is that the environment around Satoshi changed. Um, we can speculate that, that, you know, his confidence in the community grew or that he felt ready to walk away. Uh, and we, we all we know is that he signed off and that he enabled another developer to take control of the project. It's unclear what his relationship was with that developer. Um, and again, it's unclear whether this authority was even Satoshi's to give, right? Uh, so I think, again, it, it remains this interesting slice in time where you get to look at a decentralized monetary network. You know, you think of a Michael Saylor, this is the, the central bank of cyberspace. Uh, this is going to be the digital gold. This is going to be the bedrock of the financial system going forward. Uh, and here we have a small group of people litigating the, a very small change of cryptographic keys that actually controls the nuts and bolts of the software. Uh, and someone has to hold those keys. Someone has to be in charge. Someone has to do the work of continuing to manage the code. So there's been a bunch of people who uh, speculate on who they think Satoshi is. Uh, you probably better than most have really looked at a lot of the uh, the information. Uh, some of the more popular uh, answers to this type of question uh, is a Nick Zabo, uh, Hal Finney, um, even a Craig Wright. There's a faction of people who believe it's him. Um, mm. Yeah, you kind of go down the line. There's a whole bunch of different people who I think are, again, speculated to be Satoshi. Uh, are there any of those, um, you know, kind of storylines or, uh, um, you know, ideas that seem to fit the potential narrative or rather than be so much focused on like who is satoshi are you able to at least disqualify certain stories and say well it can't be you know x y or z person because of the work that you've done right so it's almost like if you don't try to figure out who it is can mm. you get closer by saying no it's not people <laughs> like the game guess who or something you know, something like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and not so much if you want to go through each individual person we can do that or just more so like uh you know if you may even be able to just say hey all of those uh variations of the story don't make sense to me for you know whatever reason yeah look i mean i think speculation about who satoshi is i you know again i think it's best 
it's left to cryptography, right? If there is some individual and or group that someday emerges that can move the coins of Satoshi or, you know, in some way cryptographically express that they are Satoshi, I think other than that, uh, I don't think there is a threshold, right? So one of the interesting things is I sent this thread around the time I published this article, which was essentially, you know, no, April 26th is the date of his, his disappearance. And if you believe in cryptography, that has to be the date. That is the date that's that the figure who was in control of the project, we assume is Satoshi, handed a cryptographic key to another developer. And in that expression of cryptography, if we, that is what we believe here, that cryptography is defining the rules of the world, then that is the succession, right? That is the point at which Satoshi stopped, you know, sort of being the manager of the project. And, and, and I think in thinking about that moment, it was actually amazing to me how little we know about Satoshi at all. We actually, uh, you know, that uh, that a simple act of him sending an empty email with this key, uh, it's probably one of the few messages that we can actually prove ever came from Satoshi. <laughs> because again, um, you know, there is no other than the, you know, kind of PGP signature on the white paper. Uh, there's never, never anything in the forum posts. A lot of his emails, you know, have never really come out. And there's, you know, from what I've seen, no kind of identifying information on that. Uh, again, this goes back to kind of the OPSEC trail of just, you know, Satoshi being, uh, in a lot of ways, I think you can draw his intent from this, right? He knew eventually he would come under the scrutiny scrutiny, and then, and he put these steps uh, in place. So I, again, I think speculation on who he is, if you believe in cryptography, uh, then we don't have an answer. Uh, and we might never have an answer. Uh, and we may ultimately be only left with a few moments uh, to really say definitively that this is Satoshi, right? I would say that, you know, highly likely the individual who was uh, attesting to be Satoshi on the forums, who was actively making changes to, to the code was Satoshi uh, because everyone treated him as Satoshi, right? So, I mean, um, can we prove definitively that it was Satoshi? <laughs> uh, maybe not. Maybe it was a group of people uh, taking turns every day, right? One guy went on Tuesdays and one guy went on Thursdays and uh, there was, you know, uh, someone else who showed up on weekends and pretended to be Satoshi. We, we just simply, we simply don't know, uh, right? I think... Um, Satoshi was uh, a person who wanted uh, to have anonymity, who I think knew, again, what his project was going to do. He understood that, right? You can see this from the first post that he makes when he talks about how this is going to break the model of central banking, where this restores this to the people who run the software. Uh, and I think, you know... Um, yeah, today the people who run the software are in control. That's that's what makes Bitcoin so hard to understand. That's why we keep wanting to ask these questions about Satoshi uh, and understanding and ultimately get that answer because we want somebody to look up to and we want, we want an authority figure. Uh, and I think it's amazing to the extent that Satoshi has denied us that. <laughs> it says a lot about him. What would happen? For her, or they are it. <laughs> what, what would happen if Satoshi coins moved, right? So those original coins that are sitting there that have been dormant, uh, you know, literally since the uh, the beginning, uh, if those moved, would that be a, a big deal? Would it then become more important as to who moved them? Uh, just walk me through kind of uh, that game if uh, if it was so to happen. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, obviously, from the market perspective, I think uh, if you were to to talk to an average long-term Bitcoin holder or believer, uh, right? They would say that uh, it's highly unlikely that those coins would ever move. And you could say that the market has, quote, priced in the idea that those coins will never move, right? Uh, and we we could say that I think the, the modern belief is that Satoshi, in order to set the standard for the project, to set the principles of the project, uh, purposely never cashed in and his ability to profit uh, and become wealthy from the project, right? He never sold out or did any of the other things that the leaders of the other projects have done. And I think that remains a really big differentiator for a lot of people with Bitcoin and other projects, because again, uh, Bitcoin did, uh, it wasn't uh, a, a, a form of value that came about through a uh, market competition, right? People chose to value Bitcoin. They chose to use it. None of the other cryptocurrencies have, have grown up uh, in that environment. So I think with the coins specifically, um, yes, there's a lot of, uh, I think, emotion and ideology attached to those. I think it would be a moment uh, in the project where uh, a lot of people would have to ask deep questions about what they think about the network. Um, so again, I think I can only speculate to uh, what the psychological reaction would be because, I, again, I think that that kind of hits at what Satoshi is to us to this day, right? He like To an extent, we are the ones who... Um, you know, give Satoshi this power. We we um, you know associate these things with him, and I think um, 
you know, again, you're the you're the investor, right? I think that uh, I think it would uh, cause some very interesting <laughs> developments in the market. Um, I would hope uh, that you know, as the story kind of shows, that you know, Satoshi left at a time when users were asserting that um, you know the project could survive. You know, even a, a, a leader who would come back and want to profit and uh, you know. Um, subvert the project or even attack it, right? Because again, Bitcoin today is controlled by users. Uh, we have the ability to elect the software we want, influence that process, uh, provided we can establish global consensus. And uh, I think that, you know, I would like to believe that that system can survive that uh, because I would like to believe that Bitcoin was always more than just that creator individual. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that, uh, Short term, there would be uncertainty, potentially even chaos. You know, price drop, all, all kinds of uh, just frankly human. It would not, emotion. not be good. <laughs> yeah, just human emotion driven things. Uh, long term, though, it feels to me like even if Satoshi came back, moved the coins, uh, and attacked the project, right? Uh, it's still mm. um, you know Bitcoin is at a point now where it's resilient enough to survive something like that. Um, you know, could be wrong, but that's kind of the the thought process over a long period of time. Short term, though, I think that you're right in that just, you know, people are really good at being fearful. They're very good at, um, you know, kind of succumbing to uncertainty. And so there would be a huge issue uh, in the short term, probably a, a pretty significant price drop. Uh, and then, you know, over time, it kind of all uh, all nets out. So it's uh, it's fascinating to think about. What uh what are the questions that you still have after kind of going through this whole process where you're like, ah, you know, there's one or two things that uh, I wish I knew the answers to, but I don't. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say one of the things that I'm still trying to figure out is to what extent did Satoshi complete Bitcoin? And then if he didn't complete Bitcoin, who did, right? And really how to answer this question, because I think think, uh, and I and I describe this as like kind of a thought paradox, um, you know, pretty recently where you imagine you're the person who invented decentralized money. That's pretty weird, right? Like you would acknowledge that the point that Bitcoin was invented, that Satoshi invented Bitcoin, that Bitcoin did not meet the definition of Bitcoin, right? Because in order to be Bitcoin, uh, the money, Bitcoin money had to be decentralized. The system had to be free uh, from control and the system had to have a series of features uh, that was meaningfully differentiated from the prior fiat currency. So I think it's interesting to think about, okay, well, did Satoshi actually ever complete Bitcoin? And if so, when did he complete it? When was the point Bitcoin was decentralized? When it was it when there was two people? Is that your answer? Like, was Bitcoin complete at that stage? And then if not, well, okay, like, well, then when was Bitcoin completed? I think as I begin to think about that, I've, I've, I do think that there was a larger uncredited group of people who did help complete Bitcoin. I do not think that Satoshi singly can be credited as the sole inventor of Bitcoin because Bitcoin had to move beyond him. Bitcoin could not have been meaningfully decentralized while he was still in control. And therefore, I think you can look at the Bitcoin that Satoshi left as being unfinished. So then I think the question for me gets to, well, who are the people who carry this through? Who are the ones who understand what Satoshi was trying to build? And then what did they specifically add uh, to the pie here to complete that, whether it was on a, and the technology or the philosophy. I think we can look back over you know 12 years now, and even amongst cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin is a highly unique project. It has made uh, very specific decisions that stand in contrast to almost every other project. Almost every other cryptocurrency project is led by a group of developers who believe today uh, that if they want to fork that system and uh, make your money operate under different conditions, uh, then they can do that. That is, that is literally the rules of most cryptocurrencies. Uh, and they believe that the free market of choice of the, among those cryptocurrencies is enough to justify that. I think Bitcoin has a very different philosophy today. Uh, it is based on the idea that Bitcoin is an alternative to the fiat currency system, that you as an individual within that system should be no greater or less than any other user, that your rights and, and guarantees to that value uh, should be equal among your peers, right? So I think that um, for me, I want to understand where that comes from, because to me, that is Bitcoin. That's where Bitcoin's gotten to. And, that's, and maybe that's what it always was. Uh, but again, I trace this back to the sort of an initial contradiction where was it possible for Satoshi to really understand Bitcoin? Uh, was it possibly for him, possible for him to have completed it? Or was the thing that he created a rough, half-finished, quarter-finished project 
that needed a set of individuals to take it forward, right? You can go back to Satoshi's writings and you can see the contradictions. You can you get you know bits and pieces where even his response to the idea that there should be multiple cryptocurrencies, right? He invents this concept called merge mining, which is the idea that multiple cryptocurrencies can share hashing power, which today amongst developers is kind of an outmoded idea, right? And you could say, okay, that was a ten years old Satoshi idea, um, but you know, again, I think that. Um, we can look at the contradictions of him and see that uh, it wasn't possible for him to have every answer, right? That what he created did become bigger than himself. Uh, and that's why I prefer to look at it as, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, uh, I would say now a more completed project. Maybe it's maybe it has more left to grow uh, and that Satoshi is a, a meaningful contributor to that, uh, but that there are others. And I think uh, as I look for where my work is going to continue, I really want to find who those specific people are, who are the people who contributed something meaningful to the Bitcoin ideology. Uh, because I think, uh, to me, those are the beautiful kind of moments of, of Bitcoin. And, I, and again, this comes from the vision of uh, if this is a human invention, if this, you know, in a thousand years, we'll look back and it's, you know, <laughs> the rotary phone, the internet and Bitcoin are the, you know, the staggering achievements. I think uh, it's fascinating to me to think that there are individuals who contributed to that, and I and I want to understand who those who those people were. It's absolutely fascinating to me, especially given the fact that uh, we will likely never have the answers uh, to a lot of these questions. But uh, but it is uh, it's incredibly important. Bitcoin has grown to a trillion dollar asset without the answers, uh, and I don't think that uh, we necessarily need the answers. It's more so just you, I, and everyone else uh, being you know intellectually intrigued by uh, by some of this. Uh, before I let you go, I ask everyone the same three questions. You'll get to ask me one to finish mm. up. Uh, first is just, what's the most important book you've ever read? Hmm. Uh, to me personally or yeah. or just to, okay. Huh. Uh, that's one that I haven't thought of in a while. Um, and this, is, this can just be any book, any sort of... Whatever's book. the most important for you. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm a literary person. I like books. I like reading for writing. I guess I would say my favorite book was Treasure Island as a kid. Uh, so maybe that's probably the most important to me since I became a writer. Uh, and I think um, I'd like to think, you know, it was that sense of adventure of writing, right? So for me personally, writing is about trying to get across, uh, again, adventure or excitement to people, right? So when I write these stories, uh, like Last Days of Satoshi, it's I hope that my excitement for that narrative can kind of push people to understanding some of these complexities of the Bitcoin subject matter they might not otherwise engage with. So I think uh, maybe that's a bit more like me personally as a, as a, as a writer or, per, or person. I think that's where I woke up to the idea of writing uh, and why writing has stayed with me. Uh, and I think I said that would be the most important book for me. That's a great answer. Uh, second question comes from our friends at Eight Sleep. Uh, I used to sleep five or six hours. Now I sleep like eight or nine. I use their thermoregulated bed, so I just make it really, mm. really cold, uh, and it helps me sleep better. What's your sleep schedule, and how has that changed over the last two or three years? Uh, interesting. I'm pretty rock solid. I'm a regular. I got to get in there at 9.30, and I get up at like six in the morning. I think uh, I'm, a, I'm a finely tuned clock. Uh, once, once, once you set it, uh, you know, I'm, I don't wake up. I don't need an alarm. Uh, it's going to be the same time every day uh, for me. Um, they say that's one of the most know. important things is uh, going to sleep at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, I mean, I'm just, a, I'm a, I'm a person of habits uh, and uh, you know, maybe stay up an hour or two later on the, on the weekends, but uh, mostly not, uh, mostly not deviating from that schedule. I love it. Uh, last question. Aliens. Are you a believer or a non-believer? Uh, definitely a believer. Yeah. It's really pessimistic to think that we're the only people in this uh, really ever expanding, increasingly complex and silly universe. I, I honestly think that would be horrifying. I think, I think that we, uh, yeah, I think we have to want aliens to exist, right? Like, cause otherwise, how do we know we're not like some hilarious, tragic mistake, right? I think like, I think if aliens, if we find aliens, uh, there's someone else there, right? Like there's some, there's some brotherhood or kinship. So like, even if they were to try to you know, exterminate us. I mean, I think it, it would still be nice, like, to know uh, that you know there's something else going on here, because <laughs> I think you know we still exist in this you know taking the historical lens, right? We still exist in this time where we're alone in the universe, right? I I think like it will. I do buy that it will be a watershed moment if that changes. Uh, but again, I think it's like 
uh, if you think about the opposite, like if we're just the only things, I think you have to start kind of going down the rabbit hole of like, oh, was, was is consciousness like an evolutionary mistake or like some of those things that uh, I don't know, for me are a little bit dark, right? I, uh, <laughs> I try not to go down those paths, but uh, uh, I'm for aliens, if only for like the intellectual comfort that they will provide us. I love it. Uh, you could ask me one question to finish up. What you got for me? Interesting. Um, super cycle. You, I think, as a person who's understanding the psychology of people probably better than most, um, do you believe that uh, Bitcoin is, is heading towards a watershed moment of adoption? Uh, and if so, uh, why do you think that psychologically uh, we're, the world at large is, is ready for that moment? I don't have the answers. I can't predict the future. Um, I, I think the way that I would think through this, frankly, is uh, there's actually a disconnect, in my opinion, between price and uh, like mainstream adoption, right? So one of the things you have to remember is the people who are mostly coming into the market, at least from an aggregate dollar standpoint, are institutions. So you can have you know a million people sign up and all want to spend five hundred bucks, but if you just have a you know two or three uh, various institutions show up, they're gonna have more money. Right. And so like actually from like a capital inflow standpoint, the institutions are going to be much more uh, heavily correlated to price than like the mainstream adoption of retail users. Uh, so I think it's important to kind of separate those two things out uh, in terms of the uh, retail user. I do, however, think that as uh, the U.S. dollar value of the asset goes up, uh, people feel like they have gotten, quote unquote, richer. And therefore, they then uh, are more likely to actually spend that asset, right? And so you get more of kind of the commerce uh, element that's attached to it. And ultimately, you know, you have eventually, not in the short term, but over the long period of time, uh, you'll likely get some level of stability uh, in the currency. And when you get that, then uh, there's a complete you know, use of the currency. There's no more belief that, hey, by holding this today, uh, it will be worth more in the future, right? It's kind of, uh, you've reached that price stability. Uh, and so I think from a super cycle standpoint, I think a lot of folks are uh, so focused on like retail adoption and psychology. I more look at it from an institutional standpoint. And I think that one of the key questions uh, is, are the retail, or I'm sorry, are the institutions a blessing or a curse? So I'll walk you through right. two scenarios. One is institutions come in, they buy a bunch of Bitcoin. There's really not that much Bitcoin for sale. 60% hasn't moved in the last 12 months. More and more are coming off exchanges every day. And so really there's only about five to 7 million Bitcoin that are changing hands You know, in any kind of given period. Uh, institutions show up, they buy that. Institutions have strong hands. They don't sell. They don't care about volatility, and therefore, uh, we are less likely to get uh, kind of an eighty-five percent drawdown. You know, as we end this uh, bull market, that's kind of one argument. The other argument is that the institutions actually have the weakest hands, and the second that it draws down 20, 30, 40%, they just offload everything, and they're like, you know, screw this thing, uh, and oh, they actually yeah. perpetuate like a faster uh, drawdown, and so 85% ends up being conservative, and like maybe it actually is like 90, 95%. I don't know what plays out. Uh, I'm frankly not so much focused on that at the moment. I think that we've still got quite a bit uh, left in this bull market. You know, we're recording this in uh, in early May of 2021, uh, and so let's see what happens kind of over the next couple of months. But I do think that um, there's a uh, an inverse relationship uh, between how high you go. Uh, and uh, kind of what the uh, the drawdown is, right? In terms of the higher you go, uh, just the further the drawdown. Uh, historically would have been, right? So uh, if in 2017, Bitcoin had gone to 10 and then drew down, uh, obviously that is uh, less of a drawdown than if it goes to 20 and it draws all the way down to $3,200. And so I think similar right. here is uh, the more that the bull market is uh, kind of bullish with a violent move upwards, uh, just the potential more pain on the other side. Now, to the true Bitcoiners, uh, I don't think that that necessarily shakes their confidence, <laughs> right? Uh, I, th I think, mm -hmm. frankly, it actually may uh, almost be an expectation of theirs. Um, and so, you know, again, that's kind of what makes it fun, right? If, it, if the whole mm. thing was just, hey, acquire as much Bitcoin as possible and just hold it, and we didn't have any of this stuff to talk about, like who is Satoshi or, um, mm. you know, anything around kind of market cycles and stuff, I think we would all get bored just sitting on our hands, you know, kind of uh, living our mm. lives. 
Yeah, I think that was also a little bit of a question about market psychology. And just uh, to me, I think one of the things that's still kind of uh, maybe a little bit disheartening is just how little the, the media narrative has, has shifted. You know, you still see the attention on, on, on Dogecoin and those type of events. So I think uh, also was interesting to get your pulse on uh, just, you know, whether there has been any, uh, you know, whether we're really as a movement, you know, kind of kind of pushing forward there and making headway. So I actually think we're going to go the opposite direction which may or may not be a good thing. But, uh, and this is more of a macro tailwind of just the gamification of finance in general, right? This isn't a, a Bitcoin thing. It's not a crypto thing. It's just everything, right? And ultimately what's happening is when you bring down the barriers to financial markets, uh, one, you increase access, which most people I think uh, think is a good thing. Uh, two is you increase the ability for wealth generation, which I think most people think is a good thing. Uh, but three is also you're going to get much more speculation in markets. You're gonna get a lot more game around it. You're going to get a lot more entertainment factor uh, out of it than when it's only just, quote unquote, the professionals, right? Uh, and so I think that we just have to understand uh, when you reduce the barriers or you reduce that friction, uh, this is a natural side effect. Uh, and in some way, it's actually a signal that uh, the friction is being reduced, right? There is more access now. And so I think, you know, one of the, the funniest things that's happened in the last, I don't know, six, 12 months is uh, everyone was yelling and screaming at Robinhood. And so their solution to being yelled at was, we're going to remove the confetti after you've made a trade, right? <laughs> now, here's the problem, right? And, that, yeah. and, and, you know, not to discount, they, they did a lot of different things, but that was one of the kind of paths that they chose to pursue. But the confetti falls after you've purchased the security, Right. It's not a thing where, hey, if we remove this, then people are less likely to buy it. It's kind of a, a dopamine hit after you've already taken the action. And so I don't know if there's necessarily users who are like going on Robinhood trying to buy a stock just to get the confetti to fall on their screen. Right. And so I think that like that's the type of stuff where uh, are we really solving the, the problem people are talking about or are we doing more things that like almost make us feel like there's uh, uh, activity, mm. but not yet progress. Right. I think that's kind of what you're talking about here is mm. uh, there's a lot of activity. People are talking mm. about it. But if you really want to address the problem, then to me, the number one way to address the problem and actually get true progress is through financial education. Right. Like mm. if you don't want people speculating in markets and thinking that they're gambling, then go teach them how to invest. Because if you teach mm. them how to invest, you can take away the mentality of like odds, right? And and that like gambling dopamine hit type uh, approach. And you can actually show them how to get rich. And I always go back to this quote that my father used to tell me all the time. He said, listen, there's nothing more fun than winning, right? And so sure, mm. there's some people who enjoy <laughs> yeah. gambling, but there's way more people who enjoy getting rich, right? And building wealth. Yeah. And so I think that really all boils down to that financial education. And then what you'll get is the more educated market you have, the more sophisticated market you have, you go back to less of the speculation, more um, you know, kind of professionalism of a market from a market structure standpoint. And the yeah. likely thing there is you actually get much less volatility um, and kind of all these other you know, benefits of, uh, of that financial education. Yeah, I think I was asking that also just because bringing it back to Satoshi, it's, you know, I, I think I get a lot more these days of an understanding of appreciation of just like what a meaningful critique like Bitcoin was of the of the system. Like we think about like the way that we were living our lives prior to Bitcoin and the way that the systems were designed, like what a like what like what a thing to leave behind, right? If you're you're the person, like the act of inventing Bitcoin, uh, you know, it goes cuts to the heart of like consumerism, uh, capitalism, like the way that uh, markets function. Uh, uh, the way that national economies function, uh, really just kind of remarkable, I think, in just terms of like, imagine being that person who really saw through all of that, right? It's taken me so long to like understand Bitcoin, right? It's, it took me like, I've been in this industry for, you know, going on nine years. It, it took me that long to understand it. And just to be the person who put that together, uh, I just, you know, I keep going back to it. It's like, man, what a, what a deeply meaningful critique on like human existence. And if you're going to sign off from the world, uh, you know, having done Bitcoin, God, Godspeed. You know? <laughs> I could not agree more, my friend. So listen, thank you so much for doing this. Where can we send people to find you on the internet or to, uh, to read your work on Satoshi? 
Yeah, at Twitter, uh, at Pete's underscore Rizzo underscore. Uh, so the article is The Last Days of Satoshi, What Happened When Bitcoin's Creator Disappeared. That's out on Bitcoin Magazine. You can catch a summary of that on Forbes.com uh, as well. Uh, and again, yeah, editor over at Bitcoin Magazine now, uh, also editor at large over at Kraken, and as mentioned, uh, you know, overseeing their open source developer grants. So if you're a developer working on a great project, uh, you know, you need some help, need some support, uh, feel free to get in touch. Always looking to work with uh, great people who are moving the industry and movement forward, so. Awesome, man. Listen, thank you so much, Pete. As always, it's a pleasure talking and we'll have to do it again in the future. Cool, man. Appreciate it.